Okay. Well, let's look at this text together. Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you stand? For the reading of the word of God. It indeed is the word of God. Otherwise, we would not be reading this this morning. Moses writes, as he is carried along by the Spirit, Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 1, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. There, we said it. Verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Petor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are camped or when you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when the evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. And as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools and you shall sit down outside and dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have shared with you multiple, multiple times throughout the last couple of years, if you come on a regular basis, that I was introduced to Christianity in a substantial way when I was approximately 17 years of age. And after becoming a Christian, I embarked on a journey of discovery regarding what the Bible contained as the word of God. I was up until that point completely ignorant as to what the Bible included. 
I had no idea what was in the Bible and I had no idea what was not in the Bible. So for quite some time, I was introduced to passages that many Christians raised in the church would have known were in the Bible. Many of these passages and stories and portions of scripture would have been portions of scripture that many people raised in the church would have been introduced to throughout Sunday school or throughout VBS. What this meant was I had to become accustomed to many of the stories like creation. Genesis 1 and 2 was new to me. I remember these kinds of things, reading these texts for the very first time, being introduced to concepts I knew nothing about. Stories like the Exodus from Egypt, Moses' leadership, which is of course relevant in Deuteronomy. Joshua leading Israel to victory over Jericho and leading Israel into the promised land, which takes place just after Deuteronomy. These were all new to me. Stories like David and Goliath. I had only a faint familiarity with a couple of these stories and only because they were movies put out, perhaps. Animated movies or cartoon stories that at some point or another I had been exposed to. Well, as time progressed and my love for scripture grew, I began to discover passages of scripture that no matter how long you've been in the church, you still may not have read. These are the kinds of passages that probably you weren't exposed to in Sunday school growing up. Probably. I'm talking about the kind of passage to which you respond that's in the Bible? Is this okay to say in church? Friends, church family, the word of God is not sanitized according to cultural niceties. Deuteronomy 23 verses one through 14 is one of those kinds of passages it flies in the face of what you might speak in proper, polite company. And difficult passages like our text this morning and last week's for that matter, really, remind us that God, don't miss this as we're starting this, that God doesn't avoid difficulties. He doesn't avoid what is depraved. He doesn't avoid what is disgusting. Why? Because God in his merciful condescension through Jesus Christ meets us in our difficulties, depravities, and disgustingness. Texts like Deuteronomy 23, 1-14 remind us if we're honest that God actually has addressed our fundamental problems. And our fundamental problems are not polite. They're not clean. They're not sanitized. They're the kinds of problems that if we speak honestly about them, we might even offend some people. Why? Because they're offensive. And perhaps most important of all, they're eternally offensive to a holy God who addresses these problems in the text and then remedies these problems by means of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I hope that's what you see as we move through what is in some ways a challenging text to work our way 
through. If you're taking notes, we're going to walk through the text by asking and answering a couple of questions this morning. So two questions that I think will help us understand and apply Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14, which was written down, by the way, for your instruction. And we'll see that together. Here are the two questions. First, what? Second, how? The first question, what? What is Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 about? What is it about? We might even say, what in the world is it about? So what is Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 about? Secondly, how? How is Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 fulfilled in Christ? Two stages that I think, by the way, help us learn how to read and interpret and apply the Old Testament. What is this text about? And then as we come to an understanding of ascertaining what's in the text, we look at this through the lens of Jesus Christ and we ask the question, how is it fulfilled in Jesus Christ? And how does it become, as it were, through Christ directly applicable to our lives So we're going to do that together, what and how this morning. Let's begin with the question of what. What is Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 about? And I'm going to summarize this in two stages. And really both of these questions have two stages, two sections of the answer. What is it about? First of all, Deuteronomy 23 teaches us that God's presence excluded certain people. God's presence excluded certain people. You could suggest actually that Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 broadly is just about God's presence. But what we learn about God's presence is that it is an exclusive presence. That is to say, there are certain people that are not permitted entry into God's presence. And you'll notice this refrain throughout the first eight verses or so. And it goes something like this. No one who is blank shall enter the assembly of the Lord or no blank shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This passage is about who may not enter God's presence. And in verses one through eight, the presence of the Lord is manifested in the assembly. And by the way, this word for assembly, kahal in the Hebrew, it's a common word used to refer to Israel gathering at the foot of Mount Sinai or Horeb, as it is known throughout Deuteronomy. This word kahal is translated by the Greek translators, the Greek Old Testament with the uh, common Greek word ekklesia which is, by the way, the word used throughout the New Testament for church. In some ways, early Christians would have read this text as instructing them concerning who may or may not enter the church. Now it has to go through the filter of Jesus Christ, as it were. Or we need to look look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ and understand it properly, which we're going to do. But that's how they understood. Many of them, Deuteronomy 23, or would have understood Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14. This word, kahal, the assembly of the Lord, is a way also of describing what it means to enter into Israel with full rights and privileges and benefits, including the worship assemblies, because you see inherent in this term is the assembly, the gathering together, the congregation. And that's why the term gets used at the foot of Mount Sinai when all of Israel is gathered or Israel assembles in the presence of the Lord. And because God is uniquely present among his people, there are certain people that are excluded as we learn. Notice verse one. 
no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. On the one hand, some commentators, some Christians surmise and conclude through interpretive methods that this is actually a way of excluding people with physical deformities concerning the male sexual organ. This is possible, but I don't think this is the point actually. I don't think it's the point for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is Deuteronomy has focused on this distinction between the Canaanites and the Israelites and the importance of drawing a line between the practices of the Canaanites on the one hand in worship and the practices of the Israelites on the other hand in worship. I think actually Moses addressed men here who practiced paganism through genital mutilation, which we do know is, was common. So in the land of Canaan, there were these priests, male priests, and many of them practiced genital mutilation and then participated in all kinds of sexual activities because they were supposedly worshiping their own fertility gods, which were worshiped oftentimes by means of these sexual perversions. And so I think it's likely here that what Moses is doing as he's carried along by the spirit of God, I think he's prohibiting cult prostitutes, as it were, from entering the assembly of the Lord. In other words, you aren't to marry paganism with worship of the one true and living God. You want to take your sexual perversions and bring those as it were into, represented on the human body, bring them into the presence of the God who is holy, 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 as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 6. So I think that's the point. And then notice verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. It seems to me, this is a reference to children born out of mixed marriages between an Israelite and a person from another nation. Again, there's some debate about this. Is this a reference to someone born out of sexual immorality within the people of Israel? I don't think so, primarily because of the way chapter 21 read, instructing in such relationships. Those people were to get married or they were to die depending on their previous relationships in marriage. Here, I actually think what Moses is doing is he's addressing these mixed marriages that are a deep concern throughout the Old Testament. Now, you need to know this. We've said this before. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, we addressed this issue, but I don't expect you to remember what we said in Deuteronomy seven. God's ultimate concern when he addresses these mixed marriages throughout the Old Testament, is not ethnic or national. These passages have been abused by people to argue against interracial marriages. That's an abuse of the word of God. I would suggest to you it's an assault on the gospel. Actually, God's fundamental concern is not interracial marriage, but interfaith marriage. That's the concern. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, he explains 
If you do this, that is, if you marry people from other nations, in particular the Canaanites, they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So don't miss this. Interracial marriage was never the fundamental concern. The fundamental concern was interfaith marriage. And what the Apostle Paul actually does with texts like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is he unpacks them as prohibitions against a Christian marrying a non-Christian. If I could just be frank, and then I'll put this aside, but this is important for us, brothers and sisters, as people who cherish the gospel that saves people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and brings them into one people, the church. It has been a problem for many Christians to argue vehemently against interracial marriage, but ironically, when a man and a woman have the same colored skin or same ethnicity, or same nationality. One believes the gospel and the other one doesn't. Christians have been largely silent. Fascinating, isn't it? We've compromised what indeed God does say and we're teaching his doctrine, the precepts of men as Jesus condemns the Pharisees for doing. So that's the point of this text for us as followers of Jesus Christ and even in this context The ultimate concern is whom are you worshiping? God demands exclusive allegiance and loyalty. And what this means, by the way, brothers and sisters, this means in verses three through eight that God is giving increased specificity, excluding certain people from his presence. And so you see, if we understand verse two is a prohibition against interfaith marriage, as it were, We could call them mixed marriages because it just so happens that these faiths were tethered to ethnicity and nationality oftentimes. If we understand that's how verse two speaks, then verses three and following unpack this in greater detail. So verses three to six indicate no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. I don't think think Moses has changed topics here. I think he's still addressing this problem he began to address in verse two. The reasons given are their failure, that is the Ammonites and the Moabites, failure to show hospitality to Israel when God brought them out of Egypt and the Moabites in particular seeking to curse Israel by hiring a man named Balaam or if you like the Hebrew, Bil'am, Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Now, we're not going to turn there. We're not going to unpack all those details. Many of you know this. The text actually says this. God takes what was intended to be a curse against his people and he transforms it, doesn't he, into a blessing. So it ends up being an instrument of blessing. What these people intended for evil, God intended for good. To use another passage. What matters for our purposes, however, and you need to get this, we need to get this week after week after week, one's relationship with God is directly related to one's relationship with his people. Now, don't miss that. Remember what God says concerning the seed or the descendants of Abraham, those who, those who curse you will be cursed, those who bless you will be blessed. This is consistently the case concerning God's relationship with his people. So what does this mean for us? This means, this means that our relationship with the church is indicative of our relationship with God. 
The two are tethered together. This helps us. This helps me. I hope it helps you. Why do you, why do you stay in the church when, when there are so many struggles? I was even talking to my kiddos about some of the challenges that you know, our Southern Baptist Convention is facing. Why do you stay in the body of Christ, Southern Baptist Convention being one slice of it, when there are so many challenges, so many struggles? And, and the answer really is this, because I've come to know the Savior of the church. I've come to know the God who has actually aligned himself with the church or aligned the church with him who is purifying the church. I love the church not as an end in herself, as it were. I love the church because I love the God of the church. And so we have to all together grow to see the church through the lens of Jesus Christ. Why do we get up every Lord's Day morning and gather at the church? Well, in part, one of the reasons I get up and gather at the church is because I'm paid to, right? (laughs) Most of you aren't. That's a means of grace in my life. I have permanent church attendance accountability. But many of you don't. Why do we gather every Lord's Day morning with God's people? Why do we serve in the church? Because we've come to know the God who meets us in the assembly, in the church, among his people. And that's in part what this text is saying. The Ammonites and the Moabites are in big trouble with the Lord. Why? Because of how they've treated God's people, you see. And the Moabites and the Ammonites were not able to enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation, which I think is a way of describing an indefinite period of time. In fact, he goes on to use in verses three and verse six, that this is a way of talking about forever, which is a Hebrew way of saying an indefinite period of time. They can't come into the assembly. They can't come into God's presence. On the other hand, there are the Edomites and the Egyptians that are mentioned. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, big trouble. Then you have the Edomites, And the Egyptians, and you may recall, if you know your Old Testament history very well, you may recall that the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So Esau was the brother of Jacob, who was also known as Israel, which is why they're referred to in this text as the brother or brothers of the Israelites. And the Edomites and the Egyptians actually have a kind of relatively privileged status, as one commentator writes, they were given access to the assembly of the Lord in the third generation. What does this mean? There's there's judgment that rests on these people. They're not, as it were, in the assembly the way they ought to be in the assembly, but they're not as far. There are degrees of judgment in Scripture, and here we find some of those degrees. Now, I want to say this as we are moving on to this next facet and laying the foundation and answering the question of what Deuteronomy 23 is all about. There is tension throughout the Old Testament. There's tension throughout the Old Testament concerning ethnicity and nationality. Here you have the Edomites, you have the Egyptians, you have the Moabites, you have the Ammonites, you have the Canaanites throughout the book of Deuteronomy and various other nations, seven nations actually that are listed as inhabitants of the land of Canaan that are outside of the people of God and under God's judgment. And on the one hand, I mentioned this to you, you need to know this as you're reading through your Old Testaments. On the one hand, religion, one's worship, is consistently tethered to one's national identity. 
during this time. You need to know that. That's, that's why these two things get confused. So if you were a Canaanite, you worship the fertility gods and the various other gods. That was just common. It's not that there are no exceptions, but they are exceptions. And if you were an Israelite, you worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's not that there were no exceptions, as we learned throughout the Old Testament. But they should be exceptions. And so for this reason, other nations throughout the Old Testament, as you're reading, other nations appear to be at times excluded from God's presence. We find this here in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, people from other nations and ethnicities can and at times did embrace the God who is and they entered into God's presence. We could give a number of examples, but for our purposes, you may remember a woman by the name of Ruth. And Ruth, if you, may, if you recall, was from a particular nation. What was that nation? Do you remember? Moab. I don't miss that. Ruth was one of the Moabites who, according to Deuteronomy 23, was never to enter the assembly of the Lord. What's fascinating about Ruth is when given the opportunity to return to Moab after the death of her husband, and she's at that point with her sister-in-law and she's with her mother-in-law. When given the opportunity to return to Moab and all that is entailed in Moabite life and worship, or do you understand Ruth actually says to her mother-in-law these famous words, and many of you know these words, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will what? Go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my, and your God, my God. What's happening? This is massive to understand the Old Testament. Ruth, the Moabite, is no longer a Moabite. She's now an Israelite. You see? And this sits under the surface throughout the Old Testament. In Ruth's case, she ends up being a part of a fairly important lineage. She becomes a part of the lineage that leads to King David. But David's just part of the story. She's listed in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter one, verse five, in the lineage of the Messiah. A Moabite. Given the eternal, privileged status by God's grace of existing in the lineage of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ruth is more Jewish than any other Jew in that sense. She's more Israelite than so many other Israelites. You see, the fundamental concern in the Old Testament is not ethnicity. 
It's worship. It's being in a right relationship with the God who is. Because it's possible, as the Apostle Paul says, to be an ethnic Israelite and not to be a true Israelite. And it's possible to be an ethnic Moabite or Canaanite or Egyptian or Ammonite and to authentically, by God's grace, be transformed into an Israelite. We could keep going. We're going to come back to that because we have a few more moments and I have a few things in the text we need to address before we bring all of this under the authority of Christ. But that's where it takes us. Not only did God, God's presence exclude certain people, God's presence excluded certain practices. So this is that second part under the first question. We're still on the first question. I know. We'll get to the second in just a moment. This will be brief. So God's presence excluded certain people, but it also excluded certain practices. Look with me at verse nine. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself free from every evil thing. And the context is one in which God's people, by the way, are gathered now. It's not the assembly of the Lord. It's now that they're gathered as a military camp against their enemies and God is in their midst. Again, the thrust is still the same. God is present among his people. So verses 10 and following specify various physical occurrences. Let's call them. Which, by the way, the Hebrew is somewhat vague at times. Now, don't get me wrong. The Hebrew is explicit at times, which is why your English translation is probably explicit at times. But the Hebrew at times is fairly vague. And so here, there are these physical occurrences that result in someone becoming ritually unfit for God's presence. And there are so many concepts here we could introduce to you, but this, this term or this, this title, unclean, unclean simply means you're unfit. You're unfit to be in the presence of God. Something needs to be changed. You need to be cleansed in order to be utilized as it were in the presence of God, in order to be received by God himself. And so where there were these various rituals that were to be performed according to God's standards and God was instructing his people again, it wasn't about as it were these physical properties. These physical properties pointed to a deeper spiritual reality. So verses 10 and 11, if a man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, by the way, the Hebrew says, and I'll say, I'll say what the Hebrew says here because it's not explicit. It says because of a nocturnal happening. What are we talking about? I'm not going to share what I think it's talking about. Use your imagination. And I think you're supposed to. Something that happens at night, a bodily discharge at night and when this happens, he shall go outside the camp. So the bodily discharge actually led this person to becoming unclean, unfit to be in God's presence. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. And as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. The point here, the point here is that when the human body discharges fluids, the person whose body has done this must 
leave the presence of the Lord and become ritually cleansed outside of the presence of the Lord. And then they can re-enter. I don't miss this. We're going to return to this. What makes the person unclean? This is massive. It's not something outside of the person. What makes a person unclean, unfit for God's presence is something that comes from within the person. And Jesus camps out on this concept in Mark 7. It's not what goes into a person that leaves a person defiled, but it's what comes out of the person. And in this case, it's physical, it's bodily, representing a deeper spiritual reality. Additionally, in verse 13, the Lord instructed his people that they must exit the camp to relieve themselves. That's what it's talking about. And so you had an outhouse outside of the camp, not inside of the camp. These otherwise normal bodily activities were inappropriate for the presence of God. Verse 14 indicates because the Lord your God walks in your midst. Why, why make such a big deal out of these things? Because God is there. This is a unique manifestation of God's presence that he grants to Israel. The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, set apart, different, so that he, that is the Lord, may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Now, the Hebrew does get more explicit there. There are certain practices, God says, are unfit for my presence. And when those things take place in my presence, you're expelled from my presence. And in this case, these practices, many of them are normal bodily occurrences. But they're pointing to deeper problems and deeper realities. And so God's presence demanded purity. And this purity was symbolized in the ritual demands of God's law in Deuteronomy 23. God demands purity in his presence. There are various things that cause someone to be impure. When that happens, God mercifully provides various rituals and ways for the person to become ritually pure again or clean again or fit for God's presence. So Deuteronomy 23, to sum this up, to sum up the answer to our first question of what, Deuteronomy 23 bears witness to not just the nearness of God, don't miss this, but the separation between the God who is holy and humanity who is defiled by sin. Think about this. On the one hand, you have pagan nations who are separated from the Lord. They can't even enter his assembly. On the other hand, even his own nation, the people of Israel at various times, in various ways, without their intentionality, as it were, normal bodily occurrences leave his people unclean and unfit for his presence. All of this bears witness to a problem. How will a sinful people dwell 
in the midst of a holy God. With this in mind, we finish our time answering the second question. How? How is Deuteronomy 23, 1-14 fulfilled in Christ? Because all of this is a tension, isn't it? It's a tension that isn't finally resolved in the Old Testament. It's a tension that's resolved finally when the Old Testament is fulfilled in the incarnation, in life, in death, in resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to give you two ways that this text is fulfilled in Christ. I've pared this down from probably 20. I don't know. We're going to stick with two. There are many ways it is. But here are two ways I would suggest to you this text is fulfilled in Christ. First, first, in Christ, those of us who were far off from God have been brought near through faith. In Christ Jesus, all who were far off from God, all who were separated from God, the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Edomites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and shall we continue? All of those who were far off from God have been brought near to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And moreover, the Israelites who while having God in their camp, were at various times forced to leave their camp because of his presence. They too, through faith in Christ, are brought near to God. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 23 is insufficient unless it's read properly as bearing testimony to the tension that is only resolved at the coming of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 23 is bad news to humanity unless it leads us invariably to the foot of the cross where God finally and forever reconciled himself to sinners. It's not incidental in the New Testament. You may recall verse 1 of Deuteronomy 23 that addresses eunuchs. It's not incidental in the New Testament in Acts chapter 8 that Philip, it's recorded. There are many people to whom the gospel was preached throughout the New Testament. Why in the world is Luke picking Philip? Why are we telling the story of Philip going and preaching the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch? Why a eunuch? Because those who are once far off are being brought near to God Amen. through faith in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the preaching of the gospel through Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch helps to resolve the tension of Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And we can't turn there because of time, but if we could, and if we'd packed our lunch, you didn't pack your lunch, I can tell. I didn't either. In fact, I've got to get on a plane in just a little while. But if we had time, Isaiah chapter 56, you can look at that later. Isaiah 56 tells of a day when God will include eunuchs. When God will include foreigners. When God's house will be made a house of prayer for all nations. That happens through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and only through Christ. So friends, this is good news. This is good news. Deuteronomy 23, read through the gospel, the lens of the gospel, becomes good news. It's indeed a warning, but it gets relieved in Christ Jesus. This is good news to you today. That you, a sinner, you, someone who has been defiled by your own sin, you can be reconciled to a holy God by means of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered to Christ this morning? Do you know Christ Jesus? And as a result of knowing Christ Jesus, do you know the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? I would encourage you, if you've not embraced Jesus Christ in faith, do so this morning. Surrender yourself to him. If we read through the story in Deuteronomy 23, I'd encourage you to consider yourself an Edomite or an Egyptian. Perhaps better, a Moabite or an Ammonite. Perhaps you'd consider yourself one of the Israelites who, for various reasons, had to leave the camp, separated from God. But in Christ Jesus, you can be brought near to God through faith. Trust in Christ this morning and experience reconciliation with the God who made you. Second, second, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, we now wage spiritual war against our sin and against Satan. Accent there falling on against our sin in this text. In Christ, we wage spiritual warfare against our sin and also against Satan. Let me unpack this just a little bit as we wrap up. The ritual uncleanness that Israelites, the Israelites experienced calls us to resist the uncleanness of our own sin. We're now in the camp of the Lord, as it were. Right? Remember what I said a moment ago? You were a Moabite or an Ammonite, but through faith in Jesus Christ now, in his mercy, you become, as it were, an Israelite. You're in the camp, and you're in the camp permanently. Secured in Christ. So now what? Now you wage war. You wage war with confidence against your sin, knowing that Jesus Christ has secured your victory. So listen to the way the Apostle Paul does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 and following. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. And so Paul does it here, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and following. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God gives his presence someday to his people in a way that's unique and final. Verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And what does he mean by unclean thing? Chapter seven, verse one, he tells us, since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So for us, living this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, we're not so much concerned with the physical rituals present in Deuteronomy 23. We're concerned with the deeper spiritual realities. And we're concerned with the fundamental problem addressed, the problem of our own sin. So what are we called to do as followers of Jesus Christ? We're called to war. We're called not to settle for our own defilement, not to settle for giving ourselves over and over and over again to a defeated enemy. We're called with courage and faith and grace empowered by the spirit of God to put to death the deeds of the body, to kill immorality, to kill arrogance, pride, to kill hatred and bitterness and in their place to resurrect in Christ humility, charity and love and faithfulness and gentleness. So like Israel, we are in a war, but our war is spiritual. And this is where Paul goes, by the way, in Ephesians 6. Our war is spiritual. It's spiritual in this sense. We wage war against spiritual enemies like Satan and his cohort. We also wage war against an internal enemy. Perhaps the most dangerous enemy of all now, self. The sin that still afflicts us internally. And this is where Deuteronomy 23 takes us. Remember when I said there's something telling about these bodily discharges not coming from without a man, from outside of a man, but coming from within the man. And Deuteronomy 23 reminds us that perhaps our greatest enemy is the one who's residing in our seat this morning. Perhaps our greatest enemy enemies come from within us. It's our ungodly passions. It's our hatred. It's our, it's our lust. So what this means, is, I think we would do well. I think we would do well, brothers and sisters, moving forward to spend less time waging war on our keyboards or our smartphones and spend more time waging war in our own hearts against some of the fundamental problems that even our society faces. We would do well, I think, if we spend less time criticizing what is happening outside of us and spend more time criticizing what is happening inside of us. This is what the gospel does. It helps us identify the real enemies. Sin that abides within and a spiritual enemy named Satan and his cohort that indeed abides outside of us but works in tandem with our own flesh in our own proclivities. So this text is about God's excluding presence. 
It excludes unclean people and unclean practices. Additionally, we've observed this morning how, how it is that Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 14 is fulfilled in Christ. Those who were far off from God have been brought near to God through faith in Jesus Christ and now wage spiritual war against their sin. That's what you're called to today, brothers and sisters. That's what I'm called to today by God's grace. One of the modern songs that we have sung here at FBP communicates wonderfully how Christ has remedied the problem of our being excluded from God's presence. And it goes like this, and we'll conclude with these words. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. And then here it is. Once your what? Enemy. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for finally, in your mercy and your kindness, absolving our sin, defeating our greatest enemy, securing our victory in our future, and calling us through the work of Jesus Christ now to fight. Not a physical war or a physical battle, but a spiritual one. With great confidence, knowing the last chapter, knowing how all of this concludes. The summing up of all things under the authority, the lordship, and the reign of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Master. Would you call us forth from this place, this Lord's Day morning, to wage war with confidence and to serve you with pure and humble hearts, longing for the day when Jesus Christ returns and makes all things new. In his name and in hope of his return, we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen.